As we move into our time of teaching, lately I have been kind of just struck anew by the wonder of the Incarnation. We've been talking about splendor, about the immense and vastness of the glory of God. And I keep thinking about how that, which I can't even come close to wrapping my mind around, became so small. And so we've called this series of messages uh, The Greatest Hits. We've been spending the last couple of weeks in the Song of Solomon. I really like the sentiment of the mixtape because I made my share of them when I was in junior high. And the, what, over the last couple of weeks, what really stuck with me was this concept of you can become so focused on trying to be holy that you can forget to be human. And I don't know if I'm alone in this. I immediately found myself fighting that. Because holy, good, human, bad, right? I mean, that's just really what we think. But as Christians, I realize, as Christians, we worship a God who would refuse to let us see life that simple. Because as beautiful as this world is, or if you prefer this, as beautiful as the world is capable of being, you're going to be hard-pressed to, to find someone who would just say, yeah, everything's perfect, everything's great. Because it's okay for us to be human. We shouldn't forget to be human, but there's something deeply wrong with humans, isn't there? I mean, countless people, scholars, philosophers, religious leaders, they have dedicated their entire lives to answering this question, how can we fix humans? How can, how can we make this right? Who or what will be the solution to the problem? And as Christians, we want to say that the answer to that is Jesus. And so today, focusing on the greatest hits, we're going to look at one of Jesus' greatest hits, one of the most famous stories in human history to make this case. If you want to turn in your Bibles, it's in John chapter 11. Uh, the page number is going to be on the screen here. It's number, page number is 897 if you want to follow along. So in the Gospel of John, to kind of set the scene here, uh, today we're really just going to be focused on walking through the story. And uh, you will read throughout the Gospel that Jesus has a relationship, a deep love for this family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. It's mentioned several times that Jesus loves these people. And actually, the, the disciple John who wrote this Gospel, he never refers to himself by name. He always calls himself, all right, Sunday school, how does John refer to himself in this gospel? Does anyone know? The disciple Jesus loved. And this is not a statement of grandeur. This is not him saying, yeah, Jesus loved me the best, guys, and I want to make sure I write this several times so that you know this. No, he's just saying, at the end of the day, I know he loved me. Because among the rank and file of people who say Jesus loves us, there should be no jealousy, no status. Just at the end of the day, it is enough for us to know that Jesus loves us because that knowledge is what we need to be able to hold fast to, to be able to withstand a test of your faith because the fact that you are tested in your faith does not change the fact that he loves you. So we have this family and Jesus was very close with them and we read earlier in chapter 11 that Lazarus had become very ill and his life hung in the balance and Mary and Martha send for Jesus but before Jesus got there, Lazarus died because they weren't just sending him a tweet saying, all right, Jesus, you better come on over here. They had to send a messenger. They had to get word to Jesus, and it would take hours and days of travel for him to come. 
And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the funeral had already begun. And there's a cultural difference here that I want to point out because if today, in today's age when someone loses a loved one, we, have, we might show our support by attending a, a visitation or a memorial service. We're going to send them a casserole or six, and we're going to tell them, I'm sorry. But that's really the end of it. In Jewish culture, and, that, and even today you have this, when you lose someone who's very close to you, people don't leave you alone. You are not alone for at least an entire week. You have many people who come and they mourn with you. I mean, that is just cheesy potatoes on top of cheesy potatoes on top of cheesy potatoes. I mean, it is just never, never stopping. Because this is the scene that Jesus is entering into, a scene of mourning for days. And what happens next is one of the most famous events in human history. But we need to pay attention to it because the story tells us not just who Jesus is, but what he came here to do. So let's start with our text in John chapter 11. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called to her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went out to meet him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So we have two sisters in the same exact situation. And they say the same thing to Jesus verbatim. Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But we have two sharply different responses from Jesus to each sister. Because when Martha speaks, it almost seems like Jesus is arguing with her, doesn't it? I mean, he's kind of debating her. Martha's like, you came too late. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. With me, it's never too late. He sees her heart flowing into despair, and he is rebuking that flow and stepping in and pushing against it. But then we have with Mary, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, Lazarus would not have died. And he is just so struck by this. Instead of pushing against the flow of despair, he jumps into it. And he's just left speechless. He's, all he could say is, where is he? Take me to him. So 
what are we to make of this? What truth does this tell us about Jesus? Imagine if you were, if you were writing your own story about a divine creator of the world who had come into the earth disguised as a human being. And in the story, this divine person arrives at a funeral of a friend, knowing full well that he had the ability to raise this friend to life. And he was about to wipe away all the tears of mourning. I mean, what sort of emotional state would you put your character in? I mean, wouldn't you imagine almost an air of excitement? You know, just maybe even smiling or playful a little bit. You'd expect him to be, you know, just, all right, guys, this is going to be great. You just, oh, can't wait. Just imagine what I'm about to do. You can't even, it's going to blow your minds, guys. Or you might even, you might have someone who's kind of above it all, aloof. You know, he knows, he sees things on a grand scale. I created everything. I have such a larger vision of things. Guys, this isn't the end of everything. I am the resurrection and the life. And he would use this as a lesson to get people to follow him more fiercely. I would never think to make this character get sucked into the agony of Mary's grief and just stand there crying. So what is this telling us? Why would he be so strong one minute and then so vulnerable the next? And this is what sets Jesus in Christianity apart from every other world religion. Other religions have their founders. They have good people who claimed to know the way to God, but no one who claimed to be God who made his way to us. Jesus is both truly God and fully man. Now, he is not just God disguised as man, and he's not just man with an air of deity about him. These two encounters show us that he is both God and human. In his encounter with Martha, he says that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, this is nothing else but a claim of deity. Only God can give life and take it away. Notice that he didn't say, I have the ability to raise Lazarus. He didn't say, I know the secret sauce recipe. I could say the right words to God, which will make him raise Lazarus to life. He says, no, I am the resurrection. Here I am. I am life. I am the power that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. And this claim has always been a challenge for people who read the Gospels. Never more so than today. Most people, even, even atheists, can acknowledge the uniqueness, the beauty, and the power of Jesus' teaching. But for many, what they use this is that Jesus was, was just one wise sage among many. He's just giving you another option for how to live the good life. But as C.S. Lewis points out, claims like Jesus is making here make it impossible for that to be the case. The founders of every other major religion says that I am a prophet and I have come here to show you how to find God. And Jesus says, no, I'm God and I've come here to find you. This means that Jesus was either a conscious fraud, he was a lunatic, or he was telling the truth. And these options leave you with a choice for a radical response. You can either run away from him because he's crazy, you can denounce him for being evil, or you can submit to him as Lord. But what you can't do is respond moderately. You can't say, nice teaching, I'll keep that in mind. Hey, very helpful, fine thinker, because that's dishonest. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then he is deeply flawed and not worth following. But the question, I think the question that we are fighting, we rarely fight in the church, what if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be? We never really answer the question, 
What if he is? Because that means we can no longer carry forth with this half-hearted approach to discipleship that we've favored. But when we get this glimpse of Jesus' power and the deity in his claims with Martha, that still does not portray the entirety of who he is. The very next moment, he is breaking down, sobbing beneath the weight of Mary's grief and in the shadow of the tomb. You would think that if a person was, di- was divine, if he was that powerful, he would not be susceptible to being so emotionally raw. But he is. So we see deity joined to human vulnerability. And what we have in Jesus is something that's pretty hard to believe. He was not just 50% human and 50% God, or 80-20 one way or the other. He wasn't just a human with a particularly high God consciousness, or a divine being who just had the illusion of a physical body. He is God, but he is absolutely and totally human. No other religion agrees with this. No other religion believes that the transcendent creator, the author of all life, became a weak, limited man who felt the total weight and horror of death. So do you believe that Jesus was the God-man? And it's okay if you struggle with this. But the case that I want to make for you today is that if you could get on board with this idea of a divine yet human person, it is exactly what you most need. In this moment of dealing with the two grieving sisters, uh, Dr. Timothy Keller points out that Jesus was giving Martha what we would call the ministry of truth. It's what she needed most at this moment. He kind of grabs her by the shoulders with truth and says, Listen, don't despair. I'm here. Resurrection. Life. It's here. That's me. Because of his divine identity, he is high enough that he can point her eyes to the stars. But then we have with Mary, he is low enough to be able to enter into her despair, her sorrow, with complete sincerity and integrity. We would call that the ministry of tears. He just cries with her. And frankly, we all need the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears at different times, don't we? Sometimes you just need a friend to shake, to shake you with your shoulders and say, wake up to what's happening around you. And other times, you just need someone to sit with you and cry. And I want to say with all sincerity and integrity, as a minister of this church, my phone number's in the bulletin. Please don't call me if that's what you need because I'm terrible at this, all right? None of us are good enough to be able to know what is needed for someone else at all times, are we? But we don't have that with Jesus. None of us have that temperance and patience, but with Jesus, he is never strong when he should be tender. And he is never tender when he should be strong. And this is what is meant when he is referenced to in the book of Isaiah as the wonderful counselor. He is the truth itself, but he's come in tears. I really liked this quote, and I want to share it with you from uh, Keller. It is this paradox that he is both God and human that gives Jesus an overwhelming beauty. He is the lion and the lamb. Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and the broken, he is completely fearless before the corrupt and powerful. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, Humility without the slightest lack of confidence. Unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption. Holiness and unending convictions without any shortage of approachability. Power without insensitivity. I once heard a preacher say, no one has yet discovered that word that Jesus ought to have said. He is full of surprises, but they are all the surprises of perfection.
So we have Jesus as both fully God and fully human. But that leaves us with the question of why. Why did he do it? Why did he come down from heaven? Why did absolute power enter our weakness? And so we look at the last part of the account in John chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, and that's a weird way of referring to her, uh, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Anyone have King James Version here? Yes. Lord, he stinketh, is really what it says in King James. (laughs) And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you've sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And I had a lot of fun researching verse 38 because, as I said before, we have a hard hard time with thinking of Jesus as a man. We really like to think of him only as God. And the English translation you have is terrible because we want to water it down. It says, Jesus was deeply moved again and he came to the tomb. You almost have to read it with a British accent. But what the the word there in Greek is, means that Jesus, something to bellow with rage. Jesus was making noises here, and the word is most often used with the snorting of a horse. Jesus snorted like a horse, guys, all right? I mean, have you ever been there where you've been so incensed, so angry, where you just, you just, I mean, I have three boys, I could tell you this happens, and I know where they learned it, and I'm not proud about that, because I am getting so angry about things that are far less righteous than what Jesus is getting angry about. So we have to ask, Jesus is shaking with rage. What is he so upset about? We know he wasn't mad at the family for grieving. What was it? And I'm going to attempt to sound... Fancy here, but I find this so fitting. The poet Dylan Thomas gets it right. Do not go quietly into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Jesus is raging against death. He doesn't say, oh, just get over it. It's just death. It's the way of the world. Guys, you better get used to it. No, Jesus He doesn't do that. He looks into our greatest nightmare, the loss of life, the loss of love and of our loved ones, and he is incensed. He is mad at evil and suffering, even though he's God. So what does that tell us? First, it means that evil and death, they are the result of sin, and they are not part of God's design for us. God did not create this world filled with sickness, suffering, and death. And it's a fair question to ask, well, if God's so unhappy with it, then why does he let it continue? Why does he just intervene and stop all of the evil in the world? But that question reveals a lack of self-knowledge. The Bible says, and in the deepest parts of our hearts, we know that so much of what is wrong in the world is a result of the human heart. So much of the misery of life here is due to selfishness, pride, cruelty, anger, oppression, war, and violence. 
the stuff we have deep down inside of us. So this means that if Jesus had come to earth on a white horse with the sword of God's wrath in, in his hand to slay all evil, no one would have been left to tell the tale. We all have evil and self-centeredness deep inside of us. But Jesus didn't come with a sword in hand. He came with nails in his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. And the reaction we have from Jesus reveals his dilemma to us. Because if you read on in chapter 11, right after this passage, you'll see that when the religious leaders, when they see Lazarus alive and they hear what Jesus had done, they immediately say, we have to kill this guy. Jesus knew this was going to happen, of course, and he knew that the only way that he was going to be able to bring Lazarus out of the tomb would be that if he entered in. And he does the same for us. He knew that if he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross and bear the judgment that we deserved. So this is why when Jesus goes to the tomb, instead of being smiley and ready to put on a show, he is shaking with anger and he has tears on his cheeks. He knew what it was going to cost him to save us from death. And despite all of this, despite feeling the jaws of death closing in around him, he still cried out, Lazarus, come out. The people there who had witnessed this, they saw all of it and they said, see how he loved Lazarus. But when we read this account now, we get to say, see how he loves us. Jesus loves us. He loved you so much that he became human, mortal, vulnerable, killable, all out of love. So what are we to do with Jesus, the God-man? How then should we live in light of the teaching today? And as we draw to a conclusion, I've been having a lot of you know, story time, but I need to go really deep on you theologically, if you'll allow me. So in Toy Story 4, <laughs> I love the Pixar movies. I think it's some of the best storytelling we have today. But in case you haven't seen this movie, I'll catch you up and set the scene. Uh, the main kid, Bonnie, is going to kindergarten, and she's scared. And since she's very shy, she has a hard time making friends. And there's a scene where Woody is trying to help. He's hiding out in a trash can near her, and she's sitting at a table by herself, and he just kind of throws up craft supplies at her out of the trash can. And it's like a spork and some googly eyes and some pipe cleaners, and she ends up making a toy out of a spork, and she names him Forky. All right, but... uh, When Forky comes home, Woody tries to introduce him, but he has a bit of a personality quirk. We're going to watch this clip here. But then something really weird happened. Bonnie made a friend in class. Oh, she's already making friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. Hey, it's okay. Come on out. That's it. Come on, there you go. Come on, let's get you out of there. You got this. Good, good. Everyone, I want you to meet Forky. Golly, Bob Hess. Look how long his arms are. Trash? No, no, toys. They're all toys. Trash. No, 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 that's the trash. These are your friends. Come on. 
have a bit of the same quirk. Because as Christians, our message isn't that death isn't scary. It is. We cannot take death lightly. Because as we have learned today, Jesus certainly did not. But you've heard it said that the world is telling you that you are a commodity. That you are something to be used for all that you're worth and then you're going to be thrown into the trash as soon as we've gotten all that we can out of you. But Jesus stands before that grave and he calls out. He says, no, that you are not trash. Come away. You are precious to me. Come out of that grave and I will enter in so that you can see that you are a child of God. Created for so many great things. And what do we do with this gift? With this amazing opportunity to live for something greater? No thanks. I'd rather go back into the trash. I'd rather live for a brief purpose that I could better understand because I think I'm in control. And then I know I'll be thrown away, but at least that makes more sense to me. Discipleship, which is surrendering the throne of your life to Jesus, is a scary proposition. It means that you will not have control any longer. It means that you can no longer define your purpose for yourself, but you get something greater in return. So we're going to let the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians guide us as we prepare to sing a song of praise to our God. Please stand for one last reading from God's word. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.